Welcome to Movies Charles Hasn't Seen, episode 66. My name is Crossman. I'm Wilson. And I'm Charles. And each week, Wilson and I share a classic movie we have seen with Charles that he hasn't seen. This week, we watch the 2007 movie, There Will Be Blood. So, Charles, tell us about There Will Be Blood. Okay, so There Will Be Blood focuses on the oil tycoon Daniel Plain... Feel? No. <laughs> Plain View. He Plain says view. his name like a million times. He's an oil man. <laughs> He's an oil man. I keep getting that mixed up. Okay, anyway. Um, yeah, so it talks about Daniel uh, as he expands his oil business and he tries to make money, um, but he gets into conflict with um, local religious people uh, who don't want to give him some of the land, um, but he manages to get his way in the end while alienating everyone around him. He wins. He wins. Yeah. Okay. All right, uh, Crossman. This was your selection on the companion piece to the 2007 movie that we watched last week, uh, No Country for Old Men. What made you select There Will Be Blood? Yeah. So I, I think that's the reason why you. I think you, like, of the movies that year, these were like the two most notable movies yes. that year. And every like all the Oscar discussions that year were like, is it going to be There Will Be Blood or No Country? Yeah, there's really no bad pick there, right? <laughs> like, they're uh, No Country got it, but I feel like they're both just yeah phenomenal. So I, I think that's the reason why I think this is a hell of a movie. I I really like this movie. Um, we <laughs> we were having a long discussion offline about <laughs> how this movie is actually. Kind of explains how like oil extraction works during this yes. time period and like the history of oil extraction. Well, it, and, almost and, more than anything else in the film. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's certainly most explicit about that, and uh, part yeah. of that is Daniel Day Lewis, right? That he's yeah. this method actor, and he's going to go and actually learn all this shit before he starts the role. Um, in the same way that when he was Bill the Butcher, he actually learned how to be a butcher, uh, and he literally researched and learned things about being an oil man. Uh, to to make this movie, yeah, um, yeah, it is that. But the the film itself is engrossed, in right, that as well, right. Um, and I would describe it as almost like a Moby Dick level of detail about like how this industry works. Yeah, the it integrates formulation of this industry. Yeah, integrates a little better than Moby Dick, whereas like half of Moby Dick is a it's very in depth and dry encyclopedia about whaling. Um, this doesn't it just it just interrupts yeah. the story. Yeah, and like talks about whaling for a while. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, that was common for books. For right? those the era. Like, yeah, yeah. So like I've read like Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea, and oh, there I are like not. chapters that are just descriptions of like fish going by the windows of the Nautilus. Yeah, I don't want to read that. <laughs> I mean chapters. Like, <laughs> it's not like a couple pages. It's like Here's a lot. Twenty pages about fish. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I, I guess maybe that's a good place to start. Like Charles, like what did you think about this movie? Well, I'm afraid I'm gonna look like I have a poor taste in movies, but no, I no. don't. I don't think I like this one, and I'm I'm just gonna be honest and say <laughs> it. But is it for this reason though that it did feel kind of like a dry discussion of how oil is made? I mean, I thought <laughs> that I thought watching them like build or engineer the different like aspects of um, like mining and uh, transporting the oil is pretty interesting. Uh, it's just, I don't know, a lot for a lot of the movie, I just felt kind of bored. It's like hard to explain. Um, <laughs> that, that is hard th- to explain. There were, there were like two or three scenes that I thought were great, and they're the ones that are commonly pointed out. 
but for the rest it just they didn't really grab me um yeah uh, can i try to guess what the two or three scenes were i mean they should be pretty what, okay so. was it the baptism where the, he has to like confess to i abandoned my boy and was it the last scene yeah, yeah. Mean, those are, those are, the, those are the, ones. the ones that really okay. leap out at you, right? But I also liked the explosion. Um, the, the, the oh, yeah. explosion scene. That's pretty spectacular. It really is. Yeah. Um, I definitely appreciated the music and some of the cinematography as well. Um, it's definitely a beautiful movie. It's just, I don't know. Like I, I didn't feel that captivated by Daniel Day Lewis's character outside of those few really expressive moments. The other moments, like. It just didn't seem as interesting. Like I can compare it directly with his character in Phantom Thread, and that one I just felt like enraptured by him the entire time. I was curious about how his character would act, and um, you know, curious about his various quirks and that kind of thing. But here, I just wasn't really drawn in by it for some reason. That's really interesting because Woodcock and Phantom Thread is a much more subdued character right like his performance there is very drawn in he's most of the time speaks very quietly like there aren't really many big moments whereas i feel like his performance here is one big moment after another right like he he occupies so much of the space um and i like both movies and both performances but it's interesting that that phantom thread landed and this one didn't it just feels like between the big moments the character felt very dry to me it's like between the big moments, there's times where he's like talking with people or trying to make business deals, right? And none of that just seemed that interesting. And at parts, it it felt more obvious that he was like doing a voice and it almost seemed a little cartoonish. Yeah, I think he is doing a voice and I think that... He definitely is. Yeah, well, of course. It's more he's, noticeable. He's British and he is not speaking with a British accent here. So yes, he is quite clearly doing a voice. But I think the character is doing a voice, right? And I think that so much of what Daniel Plainview is doing is is performative, right? Like that he he lies a lot, right? And he is presenting this image of himself as this, you know, almost a philanthropist for these towns when is that's not true at all. Uh, so I I think that in that sense, if he comes across as false in some scenes, that's by design, right? That he is supposed to be read as this character who is dishonest and mm -hmm. really is willing to say or do whatever it is in order to gain more power and more wealth. He's um, a grifter. In a sense, yeah, he's just a very successful grifter. <laughs> he, it's just, like, it didn't feel like they were showing his, like, greed or obsession that strongly. Really? Yeah, and, like, okay. whenever he does a business deal on screen, none of those felt like he really had to work for his success or for like triumph, triumphing in the deal. Cause he would talk to someone about like wanting to buy their land or wanting to make some sort of transport deal. And they might push back a little, but then on the spot he would just kind of compromise a bit and they'd be like, all right, sure, fine. Right. And then it just happens, right? It didn't feel like he really had to work for them. He just had to kind of adjust a little bit and then it worked out. Right, I don't think the movie is, a, is so much interested in the difficulty with which that he gains his success, right? I think the movie is more interested in the type of man that we are rewarding culturally and economically, right? He yeah. is despicable. Yeah, he's right? so willing to throw away relationships and... Mm -hmm. Right. And I, and, yeah, and I think that th I, I, um, the ease with which he gains so much is almost the point, right? Because 
I think what this movie is critiquing in a lot of ways is obviously greed, but also the the kind of culture that we have created that we are in fact in the process of creating when this movie takes place and who it is we that culture has selected to be the most rewarded and the most successful and the people that we have selected are the most power hungry the most greedy the most willing to cast aside anything that makes us you know social human persons and so what the, e, the the drama here, I don't think, is, co- is supposed to come from whether or not he's going to pull off a deal. I think the, the drama comes from what is he willing to give up in order to pull off the deal. And the answer is evidently everything. Uh, so, yeah, yeah, he's so quick to like this. The movie shows like a number of fairly realistic industrial accidents. Yes. And he yes. doesn't seem particularly affected by them personally no even even when they affect him personally right like so i that strikes home most clearly when his son is or his adopted son is uh next to an explosion at the oil derrick the big one where everything lights on fire and is is deaf afterwards loses his hearing and he has no way to process that or to empathize with that yeah i mean that's one of the most striking moments in the movie because they're looking at the Oil Derek like on fire and uh Kieran Kieran Hines. Kieran yeah. Hines, the great not Alfred Molina. Great huh? role player. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um he he asks, is HW okay? And he just says No he isn't. No, he isn't. Yeah. And that's and then, like Kieran runs the guy yep. Kieran's character runs off and DDL just like stays. Stays and, and, and watches the, well, the look on his face in that moment, right? Because the line before that is really important too, where Kieran Hines is really upset, all these people have died. The thing they built is on fire. The the kid that he essentially has seen grown up is now deaf and who knows how injured he is. Yeah. And Plainview says to him, what are you so upset about? We have an, uh, an ocean of oil underneath our feet and only I'm the only one that can get it out. There's, I'm paraphrasing, but something to that effect. Yeah. And he he's not just like saying that to, to Kieran to make him feel better. He is actually almost joyful in that moment. And you see that look on his face after Kieran runs off to attend to Plainview's own son, and it's rapturous. Like, he is just totally engulfed in his own power, and he sees, like, the literal display of it in this giant inferno that he's like, this is, this is his inferno. This is the power that he can, can control and manipulate and sell for his, his personal enrichment and benefit. And so I think that scene is very critical. To the character mm-hmm. yeah. yeah but that's one of the scenes that you liked yeah <laughs> yeah i mean that's one that's of the like scenes where very... he's actually doing these kind of <laughs> right. things to show his character i feel that's like there's other ones where it's not scene. emphasized enough to really feel like it's like you know showing his characteristics i mean i think his grips like start small yes and you do see that like escalate over time like yeah. when he first runs into the sunday family he's a quail hunter he's a quail hunter and he, you know, he does kind of get get out with it that he's looking for their land for oil, um, right? But he, I mean, he's ready to not tell them about the oil, right? Because what he tells Abel Sunday, the father, is, yeah. "Oh, I really like hunting and camping with my son. This looks like a great spot for that. Yeah, I will buy it in order to do that." Mm-hmm. And, and I think it's Eli, Eli has to step in and say, "No, yeah. I we want to be properly compensated." Yeah. Um. So I think that that. It's important too. Like he's not, but playing Eli. Straight. Interestingly, Eli is kind of like correct in that moment that Eli 
that they should like try and drive her a higher price. Yes. And the father just like doesn't get it. Know how to negotiate. Yeah. Like, whatsoever. Yeah. Well, and, and just, like, I think that's the first time we see this parallel that they're drawing between yeah. uh, Eli and Daniel, right? Is that and that they are similarly motivated characters throughout and have simply identified different means with which to yeah. uh, gain the power that and the money or the whatever that they're seeking. Um, and it's the classic, the two huge institutions within America, industry and, and religion, that they, they stand in for. Um, and that conflict drives the entire film, essentially. Yeah, they also, um, I, I guess even before that, well, there's a couple scenes where he meets with like a a, a large group of like towns townsfolk or whatever. Yes, settlers. <laughs> yeah, uh, peasants. The oh, first geez. one he kind of exits because they're all just, like yelling, and he's like, "Right, I wouldn't take like, this lease if you gave it to me as a gift." Yeah, right. This is not good. But he does it again, and in both scenes, he starts by like kind of he starts with how he's a family man. That's right. like the beginning of his right. Speech. He's got and the so exact there's, like, script. Yeah, yeah, it's that, almost beat for beat, like the same thing. That grift is so interesting and, and effective and still effective. Yeah. He also promises, like, all this infrastructure is going to come to mm-hmm. the town that they're living in. And he may he may not be wrong or lying, but that's, like, the same sort of grift that, like, um, oil still pulls, where they're like, oh, if we, if, you know, if we're just able to, like, extract it from the ground, it'll pay our taxes. When yep. In reality, that money never comes through because of how taxes are structured. Same with the lottery, same with... Sports you, stadiums. You know, whatever. Amazon. Yeah, sports stadiums, yeah. Yep, over yeah, and over. Exactly. Same, same was, scheme. That felt like, that moment felt like very contemporary. Yes, yeah. it did. Yeah. But I think what's yeah. important about it, and maybe even specific to that era, is that he doesn't just pitch himself as, oh, I'm going to bring all this prosperity to your town. He says that he is going to do it personally, right? He's not. He doesn't hire contractors, right? Yeah. He doesn't... He doesn't lease out to other guys to come in and do the work. He has his own employees that are working for his company. He's not a speculator that gets in between you and your oil, right? He's the one who is actually physically doing it with his hands, and which works out to be true, right? He is actually doing it. He yeah. is actually getting oil on himself. He is extracting it from the earth with his own employees, with the, the derrick that he built. And I think that that really strikes at the conflict between him and Eli because he sees Eli as someone who is not producing anything right he sees he sees the Christianity and religion as myth and superstition he sees what Eli is doing as pure theater that it serves no function other than to dupe people out of their money to and, and gain them nothing and he resents him for that I mean, he straight up says that the church is like wasting his employees' time. Yep. Day, yeah, exactly. He see, he sees it as as something that isn't earned, which is why he never pays Eli that five thousand dollars because he thinks he doesn't deserve it. When he finally does lash out at him, he throws him into a pit of oil and covers him in that oil. Right. That he he literally dirties this man and gets his hand gets his hands into the soil that he refuses to touch to gain any of the wealth that he wants, even though the two men are both after the same thing. Yeah, and he also tells him that his brother you know, right. is operating his own wells and right. is successful. Yes, and is the real one that he's he yeah. is doing it right. That, um, on rewatch, I, I knew that they were different people, but I right. still found it confusing. Yes. That, 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 that's, that there took are two me a Paul Danos. <laughs> yes. It took me a while to figure out. The two and Paul Danos in the film is a little confusing. I think we needed like a small moment in the film where there were both 
and that never occurs. Because I, th I think it's supposed to, well, obviously it's supposed to be ambiguous because clearly that confusion occurred to PTA when he made this movie, right? Yeah. Like, and I, I think it's not, it's, it's not even clear to Daniel Plainview when Eli shows up that he wasn't just using a pseudonym earlier on, that he's not trying to play both sides of this negotiation. And I, I'm not exactly sure what to do with that yet. It's one of the more confusing parts of this movie. Um, yeah, you were saying you didn't catch that either, or you were confused yeah, it, by it? Yeah, it took yeah. me a sec to realize they were different people, because I must have forgotten Paul's name at the beginning. It wasn't even reconfirmed for me until the very end of the movie, when, yeah. when he tells. Yeah, it's because it, it, that's the only crystal clear moment, and even there, it's not, like, there's a reasonable reading that what he's saying is, you should have stuck with your original plan to actually do something and build something worthwhile and be a person that is willing to work instead of this plan as a con man lying to people and getting them to buy into these delusions. I don't, that, I think that's unlikely, but I think it's possible and I think it's in the text. So I think that there's this great ambiguity, unresolved ambiguity in this character, or maybe two characters, <laughs> we're not sure. Um, Paul Dano's kind of great in this film. Yeah, he's great in general, but also here. Yeah, yeah he, he plays uh, one or two a, characters. A different ty type of huckster. Yeah. Yeah. He's essentially like a faith healer. Yeah. He, yeah, his like gospel is faith healer-ish, which is like a very common grift. Yeah. Um, and you get that great scene where he is extracting the devil from this woman's arthritic hands. Yeah. And like the... the I love the camera work in that moment. That it's a pretty it's a pretty long shot with him doing this whole big performance, and you you follow him like the camera's pretty much dead on him most of the time, and you follow him out of the church as he tosses the spirit or the devil or whatever it is outside, and you get like these every once in a while a little cut of Daniel Day Lewis's reaction, and like that's the character you're supposed to be suturing in with at this moment, and he's just not buying it for a second. Right, like just the sheer skepticism on his face over and over again. How is uh, the jig not immediately up when the old woman's arthritis inevitably doesn't go away? I mean, the, ask that of any faith yeah, system outright. This, yeah. this is a very common, yeah, like thing. No, I mean that that is a reasonable question, um, and many people asked it, and you know, were unsatisfied Maybe with the, the answer. The placebo effect is just that effective. It really is, actually. The placebo effect is strong. There are like faith surgeons, even that like mm -hmm. fake. What surgery? Like on um, yeah, yeah, fake surgery. It's, it's a thing. Yeah, there, there's and on the other side of that, there's Christian scientists who refuse to go to the doctor and think that that's an uh, insult to God and His power, and think that all they need to do is believe that their cancer will be cured or whatever. Yeah, but that's that's like an active act of faith, whereas yeah. this is like a clear grift. Yeah, like, yeah, it's, yeah, it's it's different than what Paul that's very different. Doing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but the point is that faith makes people believe ridiculous things, mm -hmm. um, including the Paul Dano thing and the faith certain thing yeah it, well yeah and yeah it, it makes you easy to take advantage of yes yeah. i think both of these characters are involved with yeah yeah and that's that is the scheme whereas like if if you believe plain view you believe that he's not in it for himself right because that's that's because yeah. that's every line that he tells you at the beginning of the movie right is that he is going to bring you all this wealth and prosperity um, and but the Dano character yeah. sort of promises the same thing, just just through faith, and that's yeah. why they're paired in this film. Yeah, yeah. he oh, and he, yeah. in a sense, promises it on a much larger scale because he promises them heaven. Yeah, right? eternal, eternal happiness. Yeah, eternal happiness. Yeah. Right, which is even harder to swallow. Um, so yeah, his 
his uh the, the scenes when he's preaching are obviously the best for him yeah yeah, like yeah, he, yeah yeah although i kind of like him at the end of the movie when he's doing like when he like has to break down and like you see his facade like finally crumble and you he does that really well like in paul dano it's like this you know weird looking froggish man and he, <laughs> he's very young looking he is i think he's, he's childlike act, i think he's yeah. actually young but he's yeah. he's a strange face like he's just very striking no one else really looks like him he's <laughs> just a peculiar it's a character face mm -hmm. right i can't help but feel annoyed by him and i oh, think yeah. it's because of his character in looper oh yeah that <laughs> i just feel eternally annoyed by paul he Dino. was like the really pitiful assassin wasn't yeah it? Or, yeah yeah so that okay. just left me with this like permanent impression of him and that i haven't been able to shake it i've yeah. only seen him him in that and this i think but still so you have not seen swiss army man i did not see that one did you see swiss army man I, I didn't. I think it's um, maybe too weird. It's really good. I love. It. Yeah, I loved it. I thought it was great. He is specifically good. I, in I it. got a long list of films, and that's put that one on it, man. It's good stuff. Okay. Um, but yeah, he, it is super weird, and he is super weird in it. And I think that he seeks this stuff out. And I think part of the reason is that he's such a peculiar looking man. Like he really is, and he knows <laughs> he's gotta it. Own it. Yeah, I, literally. And he's kind of building a career on that, and also you know just being talented. He's he is great in this film though, and watching him just get slapped around by. Anna Davis <laughs> is really but he's got the kind of like perfect face for that, right? Because like he's the guy who like a will bother you and be face. like super righteous about it, which yes. is great for like the religious uh, preacher role. Yeah. Yeah. But he's also got that kind of vulnerability that makes you feel bad when you slap him around. Because he's so pathetic. So right? then, and like, you just you just can't win with this guy, yeah, right? Yeah, exactly right. And even when he, like, gets the upper, briefly get, gains the upper hand on plain view and, like, has him doing the, the pseudo-baptism thing, uh, it's still, like, he, he does it in, like, this whiny kind of way, right? Like, it's this, <laughs> this high-pitched kind of... Uh, preaching at him and, and giving up these orders. Wins. Like, he gets what he wants. And, he, he, yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, they both do in a sense. Mm -hmm. um, but it, Plainview wins in the end. Yeah. yeah obviously. Uh, want to talk about that scene? Because that is one of the more famous ones in this movie. And really probably what won DDL the, the Oscar here finally. Yeah. Yeah. It's well, got to be the most famous scene in this movie. That or the milkshake. Oh, I thought we were talking about Oh, no, I was talking about the one in the, more towards the middle of the movie okay. where he is... The baptism scene. The baptism scene, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, so in that sequence, uh, Daniel Plainview, has, there's one tract of land that he hasn't been able to buy up. The guy who owns it tells him that he is willing to sell if he will go to the church and accept Jesus Christ into his life. No, admit his sins. And he admit, says, what sin? Yeah, yeah. Extracting oil? Yeah. <laughs> Drilling? <laughs> the, the, the gun that he used. murdered a dude. Yeah. Dude. Literally <laughs> murdered Yesterday. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, within 12 hours. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. It was like last night he killed a guy. Yeah. Um, the gun's still warm. <laughs> right. So, um, but that was not the sin that Daniel Day Lewis was actually thinking of. The sin he was actually thinking of was that he abandoned H.W., his adoptive son. After becoming disabled. After he became disabled and he just had no right. patience or capacity to understand anything from anybody else's perspective. So he did not know how to deal with his son being uh, deaf now. Um, and that is eventually what Paul Dano gets him to admit in, in public in a very shaming way uh, to the entire town that he abandoned his son and abandoned his boy. Um, yeah, it's, it's interesting. It's the only regret this character seems to have 
Right, well, like, what he, he, that's what I was curious about. It's yeah. like he, he conveys it's, so much emotion at the end there, but I wonder if it's actually because he regrets it because he seems to have no remorse for or like actual feelings for his kid the entire movie. So I wonder if it's actually regret or if he's just angry that he's like forced to do this on the stage. I think you see it. I think he's actually feeling it there. Because like, I think the moment is, because the, the line that Paul Dano feeds him is, I abandoned my child, right? And he gets him to repeat it a few times, but then Daniel Day-Lewis switches it a little bit. He says, I abandoned my boy, right? And it's like that he is internalizing the language enough that he is adapting it to his own mode of speech. To me, says it's something that he's actually believing and actually mm -hmm. regretting. Um, the other moment, the relationship between him and H.W. I think is pretty complicated. The, the the first time, or one of the first times you really see them together is at the very beginning of the movie when they're on a train together and H.W. is still a child. And you have this relatively long take where it's really just the two of them. H.W. Uh, is an infant and you know, Day Lewis is an, an adult, um, just looking at each other, and he looks genuinely happy and genuinely in love with this child and you never see that look on his face again like that it, they, and they don't talk about it and he never says anything to the child and the child can't speak at that point but pta spends time on it and he draws attention to that loving relationship um, and i think that is what he daniel Plainview is giving up right mm -hmm. that's that's what he's losing throughout the course of this movie um and there's a sincere tragedy to that. Well, he said, so kind of about midway through the movie, someone, after H.W. is deafened mm -hmm. and shipped off to San Francisco, San Francisco I guess, I for yeah. some sort of asylum, um, a man appears and he claims to be Plainview's brother. Henry. Henry. From Fond du Lac, Wisconsin. Yeah. And... He seems to know a lot about Plainview, mm -hmm. and he sort of brings news that Plainview's father has died, and he kind of befriends Henry and takes him in. And pretty early on in their relationship, he turn, he like tells Henry that he just has like hatred for everybody else. Yes. There's like, a competition in me. Yeah. Right. And the yeah. competition is just that he doesn't want anybody else to succeed but himself. Right. And that seems like the one candid moment uh, the character in yeah. the film. Yeah, I mean, I think he's yeah. honest with himself when he's with HW, but that's the only time when he's honest with another person. Yeah, and I think one thing that's kind of interesting throughout <laughs> the film is whenever Plainview is like asked a question, he rarely directly yeah. answers the he, question. He ignores questions all the time. Yeah. Like, like there, when he's dealing with a guy from, is it Standard Oil or Union Oil? One of them. Standard. Standard. And he asks him how his son is, and he literally just walk, he walk, talks right past it. Like, just no response at all. And there are many times when that happens. Yeah, he does it frequently in the movie. Yeah, um, and it's, it's dehumanizing. When, when he first meets um, the first Sunday, Paul Sunday. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, same move. Same thing. Yeah, Paul asks him, like, a bunch of questions, and he just, like, doesn't answer them. Right. And so it's weird when he's talking to Henry, because it's, like, the one moment where he says something that is direct and true right yeah yeah about himself yeah right because he, he also never talks about who he is in a sincere way right because when he talks about himself it's with it's it's pitch right i'm a family man he's not right it's not a real family he essentially adopted this baby because another worker died at his original job and he doesn't have a wife he doesn't know where his parents are his he apparently had a brother that he didn't even know about 
he has no connection with anybody else. Um, so when he pitches himself as a as a family man, that's just the opposite of true. And it's really the yeah the only time he ever talks about himself. It, yeah, it almost seems inevitable that he has to kill Henry because Henry knows the truth of yeah who Daniel is. Yeah, <laughs> even well, though Henry was lying as well. Right. Well, he knows who he is, it, it, both in the sense that he knows that he's lying all the time about what his his motivations are and what drives him. Yeah. But also in the sense that. Daniel did reveal some of himself to another person, and when he learns that he has been tricked, like that's such a profound betrayal because it's really the only time that he does that, mm-hmm. and it backfires on him. He, he he is in the position of all the people that he's been targeting over and over again. It's also the first time that like someone pulls a wool over on him. Yeah, right, right, exactly. Where he's he's made to look foolish. Yeah, and it's not till very late in the relationship that he like some small detailed slips about. <clears throat> He doesn't know something obvious about where they're from. Petri dance. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then he asks him some other question about like what the farm on some street is called. Yeah. And he can't tell him. And that, yeah, that was enough to justify killing him. Well, that's after yeah. he's already figured it out. Right. And right. And that's that's the yeah. that's the the test question. Yeah. Right. Like the answer this or die question. Um, there's a great shot of them right before Henry is killed. A shot of them on the beach. Um, where you have them next to each other. Henry is closest to the camera. They're both crouched down a little bit. And you have, yeah, you have Henry completely in shadow and Daniel completely in light. Yeah. Um, and it's excellent foreshadowing. It reminded me of a painting, actually. There's that painting of a maroon pirate. Sure, yeah. It's the one that inspired that magic card of Jace. <laughs> okay. Um, it's the same one. But they're in the exact pose, just like alone on the beach. Yeah. Yes, it reminded me of Moonlight on this watch because there's a, that famous scene in, on a beach in Moonlight. Uh, happier results in that movie, uh, but yeah, the, it's very striking um, in a scene of, in, in a movie full of striking shots. Yeah. Um, so that we this is our second PTA movie. The last one we had watched was was Boogie Nights. Um, how's this one compared to Boogie Nights for you, Charles? Well, I think I like Boogie Nights more just because yeah. I <laughs> enjoyed. Well, I, I was more invested in the characters, and I enjoyed the various random like chit chat that they had in between the pivotal scenes. Mm-hmm. Whereas in this one, like the in the interim scenes between the really big dramatic ones, I just felt a little lost or a little bored, a little out of it. And um, yeah, I mean, I, I think part of it was just my lack of investment in the characters, and that makes all the dramatic scenes less important to me. If I hear you, if you know what I mean, yeah. yeah. I mean, to me, what, what's striking about this movie in comparison to Boogie Nights um, is that they're similar in that they're both movies about surrogate families, right? Which is a, a running theme throughout much of PTA's filmography. So these people, especially fathers and sons, you see it in The Master, you see it in, in Heart Eight, uh, Magnolia, Here, and um, Boogie Nights. Uh, but in that movie, it was a, the the family becomes a healing place, right? Where like he takes in, uh, he the Dirk Diggler character is, is taken in off the street and he is made better by all of the, the people around him even though they have no obligation to him. Um, and in this movie, I think you see the, uh, the same message delivered in the inverse, right? Where you see a character becoming increasingly isolated and intentionally isolating himself from others. Mm-hmm. Um, and at, although he becomes more powerful in doing that, he is act, in, in fact diminishing himself. Um, so, the, like, the in many ways, the the fundamental thesis of so much of PTA's work is really family matters, <laughs> and which is almost trite in its simplicity. Um, but I think you, you see it here 
Um, and I think that the, the lack of uh, the, the importance of children and the lack of women in this movie um, speaks to, to that. Because uh, it's another, you know, H.W. as the adopted son and, and Daniel Plainview as the adoptive father. I'm not a PTA scholar, so. <laughs> well, then take my yeah. word for it. <laughs> okay. Like, I like this movie more than Boogie Nights. I do too. Um, yeah. And I like Boogie Nights a lot. Yeah. Um, how's this fallen near? I don't know if you've seen everything he's done, but. Uh, hardly, actually. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. I'm not a follower. Okay. So. I, I certainly am. I'm like, I'm not going to be drawn the bush. I think that he's, he's phenomenal. Um, and this is. It's it this wouldn't be of, hard to catch up on his filmography. Is he right? hasn't done that much. He's got like. <laughs> Seven villains, maybe. Yeah, right around there. Yeah, like he. And yeah. we've already seen what, three of them for you. And <laughs> I think there's yeah. a joke about it in the show, bored to death, because they have like Paul Thomas Anderson in the show. Oh, okay. And he's like, can he act? He's writing a new movie, and he needs like a a script helper. And the main okay. character, played by Jason Schwartzman, like is is about to get the job but then through a series of events like doesn't get the job and he just says like oh don't worry about it. i'll get you on the next one <laughs> <laughs> the next one is in seven yeah. years or something. <laughs> yeah. i believe there's also a scene where he's like bicycling around jason Swartzman <laughs> in like a weird room or so something. he's like actually has a significant role in the show in in it's a short story arc but it's like okay. a part of I think that's so like multiple season. episodes yeah wow it's an underrated show that nobody watched <laughs> yeah the ted danson's yeah. in that too right and he's hysterical in it. I believe it. He's a funny yeah. dude. Yeah. Um, Zach Galifianakis is also in it. He's also a funny dude. Great. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. For me, like it's either this movie or The Master are my favorite PTA movies. Um, but it's it's. I don't think he's made a bad movie. I think they're all they're all basically hits. Not everybody liked The Master, right? The, yeah. yeah, it was divisive. Um, yeah. It's it is his probably his strangest movie. Um, and it's kind of about Scientology, but kind of not. But kind of not. Yeah. Um, it's Joaquin Phoenix and Philip Seymour Hoffman, and Joaquin Phoenix plays a crazy drifter that gets taken in by um, Philip Seymour Hoffman as the Scientology leader character guy, um, and they develop the father-son surrogate relationship that you see in so many PTA movies. Um, it's super good. Go watch it. Okay. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'll check it. Yeah. Um, yeah, I heard that. Not, not everybody was like thrilled with that. I, I was. I thought uh, one of the few movies I've seen on its initial theatrical run more than once in theaters. Hmm. Um, it's it's. Super it was good. also a late Philip Seymour Hoffman, right? One of his last roles. Yeah. In fact, I believe it was that at the rap party for that movie that he took a drink that knocked him off the wagon after many many years of oh, not man. drinking. Yeah. So in in some ways, the master killed him. That sucks. Yeah. It's it's a sad story. Yeah, and then he was in like. Wasn't he in Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, and that was like released posthumously? No, he, he, it was a different spy movie. Um, okay. That was oh, like a, a serious man or a most serious no. man or something. Uh, most wanted he man. A, most, he was in a most wanted man. Yeah, that was it. He was in a Mission Impossible movie, but I think that might have been that right was well before. That was <laughs> the master. Yeah. yeah, yeah, which was okay, but not good. <laughs> yeah, but you're thinking of a most wanted man with uh, Rachel McAdams. Uh, which was actually pretty good. Okay. Oh, I saw it. Uh, uh, <laughs> most Serious Man, not great. I mean, um, do you mean A Serious Man? A ser no, The Most Wanted Man or whatever. The the Wanted Man one. Yeah, that's the, that's the, the Philip Seymour Hoffman one. The Most yeah. Wanted Man. That was yeah. his last movie. Not good. Oh, I thought it was all right. Uh, I thought it was boring as hell. Yeah, it's all As was Tinker <laughs> Taylor Soldier. Side. That movie was just baffling. I don't I didn't understand that. That movie. was like unwatchable for me. <laughs> yeah, uh, it was, yeah. It was hard. Awful. 
Um, uh, <laughs> getting back to this one, uh, yeah. what, do, what do we think of the end? Uh, that, that's the other like big famous moment. Um, that's kind of why people sometimes refer to this as the milkshake movie. Um, well, how, how did it land for you? You said that was one of I the mean, few scenes you liked. It was a powerful scene and certainly extremely well acted, but it also felt kind of abrupt. Yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> Definitely. Like, it just cuts to the end and then the the like you know the future of him with his mansion like that whole sequence felt very brief compared to the rest of the movie yeah i I think it's because at at the moment when he like you see he's you see him make his choice right like when when he kills henry when he only accepts hw back into his life after he is useful to him and after he is made to feel publicly guilty you know and shamed into it um, and and then after he tries to use him, you know, to to punish the Union Oil guy, like at at this point, like he he is not salvageable, right? Like he has given up the last of his humanity. So there's really nothing to depict until he finally does. So it's more of an break it off. And yeah, I think that's a fair way to read it. Um, I think that the scene with the adult H.W. is really underrated. Like that is. For me, that is riveting and heart-wrenching. Yeah, I, yeah. I agree. I also really like the scene where he's just shooting his things in the hallway. <laughs> yeah. Because it was like, it just shows like, like how worthless his wealth is. Right. How, tr- how trivial is all of his ambition at this point. Because he's just like shooting his objects, right? Right. Just for the hell it's of like, it. like, oh, you got this big mansion, now what? Right. And you fill it with what all these it? rich things and you, you shoot them because right. you just have like... Nothing else to do. Yeah, there's like no feeling or emotion in your life like, right. it's well, funny because there, there was a later scene where they show that same hallway and there's like a shape on the ground and i actually couldn't tell if it was just him like kind of hunched over and like asleep on the ground but then it started moving and it was a dog <laughs> right yeah but i just thought oh, it was yeah, funny that it's, i was like a great thing it's I, like a huge animal yeah. for a second i thought it could have been just him like being a wreck yeah it, it, which is how you find him at the beginning of that right yeah. like his butler has to or no that's that's later on after he Talks to in the son. bowling alley. In the bowling alley, it takes great effort to <laughs> to rouse him um, from whatever drunken stupor he was in. Um, but yeah, that that sequence with his son, where he just finally just goes over the deep end in in a really un- unredeemable way. I quite like that scene as well. I, I guess yeah. I kind of link it with the end. Yeah, scene yeah, like they are important, connected, thematically connected. Yeah, where he he destroys like he has two relationships left in his life essentially and destroys them both. For did he really have a relationship with Eli at that point? Like I don't. It seemed like they hadn't seen each other since. No. Well, it rela- relationship in the sense that he had a a, a relationship of rivalry or adversity mm-hmm. or or something. I mean, he, he had another human being in his life, sure. and he <laughs> said, "No, I don't want that anymore." I like how he like calls him like a brother, or, like right. friend. Yeah, we we're old friends. It makes no, Dano's yeah. character seem like even more pitiful. Yeah, yeah, like this is the guy that is his friend. Because he, like, Plainview clearly doesn't care that he doesn't have friends. So. Right. Yeah. Right. Because um, he hates everyone. Right, exactly. He yeah. He does hate everyone. Um, and that that is who we're, <laughs> we've decided we want so to reward. So if you're Plainview, you watch the end of this movie and it's a happy ending. He's finished. Yeah. At the end of it, he has done what he's he... got exactly what he wants, and there's no people around. Yeah, he doesn't. So for him, that's a very happy ending. He doesn't it, look that happy. I though. mean, it, <laughs> it was like it did feel like it was kind of cool that he does like unmask Dano at the end. He, oh yeah, absolutely. Like he's able to reveal Dano as a as a grifter, and right? That, like to show that his faith is fake is like so 
rare, right? Yes. <laughs> so to like to get that moment is. And he gets to get revenge on him the same way that he humi- that uh, Dano humiliated him earlier in the movie. Right? Yes. Yeah, and I think the important distinction though is that Plainview's humiliation was public, and Dano's or Eli's was private. Yeah. Because Plainview doesn't give a shit if other people know. He wants to know because he yeah. is so solipsistic that it, it's all about him. It's all about merely his knowledge of it. He doesn't care that yeah. this is a but public thing. He's also like toying with him, right? Oh, yeah. He's like, I'll give you money if you do this. Right. And then, right. And then he just, just kind of like laughs out of him afterwards. <laughs> yeah. He already drank it, that milk. Yeah, shake. explains yeah. to him how what he's asking for doesn't exist. Yeah. Well, oh, and DDL just chews up the scenery in that. Like he is. Yeah. He, he is just loving every second of that. You can you can see it in his performance. He's you know, running over to the where the milkshake is and then running back with his straw to to it, illustrate that, like, the weird point. Sort of like yeah, walk his, over. His finger waving up in the air. Yeah. Yeah. Because um, Dano's lost all of his money in the in the Great Depression. In the Great Depression. Yeah, or the yeah. Black Friday. Yeah. 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 The Lord didn't warn him about <laughs> about the economic troubles. Um, and then the movie delivers on, on the promise in the title uh, that they he bludgeons Paul Dano to death with a bowling pin, and there is blood pools on the ground. Oh, there was um, plenty of blood before that. Yeah, it, yeah, but it's not really depicted that clearly. And it, it, well, in a sense, there was um, in that the other thing that happens in the baptism sequence is that he says that he will take the blood, right? That he wants the blood to give it to me, and I think that that. Is in, that again articulates the distinctions between the two of them because the blood that the Paul Dano character wants uh, Plainview to accept is not real, right? It's not actual blood, it's a metaphor for Jesus or whatever, right? Whereas the blood that Daniel Plainview delivers is blood, yeah. <laughs> it's physical blood that is flowing through your brains and on the floor after he beats him to death. Um, and again, it's this, this. Different approach to the same the same end the same violence and it, whether it's the psychological violence or the the, the physical violence these characters are, are the same um, and end up in essentially the same place uh, whereas uh, Paul Dano is physically broken Daniel Plainview is, is spiritually broken mm-hmm. yeah mm. <laughs> <laughs> that and they kind of they have a very Tarantino esque ending. Where he he shouts out, "I'm finished," and then the music comes in, yeah, and it's, it's cut like really, yeah, out, which is a great end. Very yes. very theatrical. Well, yeah, it sounds like an overture or some sort of big like you're supposed to walk. No, but the, the even just the calling out of "I'm finished," right, right, right. Very like a very point. theatrical way of like ending. Film. Yes. Reminiscent of Inglorious Bastards. Love that movie. Which, which ends on Brad Pitt saying, "I think this is my masterpiece." Yeah, so, <laughs> yeah, that's true. When he carves yeah. the swastika on the guy's forehead. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I take notes when I do these movies, um, and the last note that I took for this one was capitalism kills love, and I think that that is exactly what's going on here, right? That if you are a good capitalist, you will cut everything out of your life that is approximating human love because it is not valuable and it's not money, um, and I think that's that's Daniel Plainview in a nutshell. Yeah, that's, that's fair. Okay. That's fair. That's <laughs> uh, Do we have any uh, <clears throat> any closing thoughts on on the Obi Blood? Um, it's beautifully shot. Yes. And the color palette in this film is very specific. Like lots of yeah. 
blues and grays whites yeah like almost blinding desert (coughs) yeah every time that came up it just felt so bright yeah yeah Yeah. it's also kind of tinted in a way to be reminiscent of like old-timey photos sure um which is true the same thing the blindingness of those old-timey photos comes out there too Mm because they use such bright lights and there's such like a lower range of uh, contrast in those photos so yeah um the set design is also excellent um i remember reading that to construct all the structures in this movie um they just drew everything by hand and and then constructed like what they drew Mm -hmm. and they were like kind of replicating like how things would have been made like right you weren't like calling an architect and like having them measure and things. Yeah, there's no blueprints, like, really. Yeah, so the set designers really just kind of like sketch things out and then just like made what they sketched. Right. That sort of like creakiness kind of comes through and like all the structures out on the planes. He, he, yeah. I mean, PTA just built a town, really. Like, not a very big town, but yeah, built a town to shoot this movie. And yeah, those things were all just, they weren't there. They had to build an oil derrick, mm-hmm. right? They had a wood. And they had to burn it down, right? <laughs> There's a lot of stuff that they just had to actually do for this movie, um, which is pretty cool, right? And cool to see. Yeah. I think my favorite shot was when they had the railroad track center and going all the way down to the horizon, mm-hmm. and then their car comes up from the right side. Right, and you follow it, like, in that panning, like, through through the whole town. Yeah, yeah that that is a cool shot, I agree. Um, yeah, but in a movie of many cool shots. For sure. Cool. I think I said with Charles, I think I'm more in the line of No Country than, okay. than uh, There Will I'm, Be Blood. I, 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 to you me, really it, still like it way more than I did. Yeah. yeah, it, it's, yeah. Uh, to me, it's like picking a favorite child. Like, they're both just phenomenal movies and a phenomenal year for movies. Um, I probably do tend more towards There Will Be Blood, but that's just, it might be because I watched it most recently. Um, How about The Coward? Uh, that might be better than either of them. I, <laughs> I, yeah, I really love that movie. Um, but it, Again, like 2007, there's like five or six totally reasonable picks for your favorite movie of that you year. You've been finding, I think, finding, no, it's Ratatouille that comes out. That yes, year. Ratatouille. That's comes, oh, dang. One of the underrated Pixar films. Yes. Yeah. Um, and I even, always, I always like that one. Yeah. Yeah. Gone Baby Gone came out that year. Um, good, but not as good as these. No, not as good as these, yeah. but there's a lot of like yeah. good movies too. It's not just, you know, a handful of really great stuff. It's a bunch was of really Zodiac great stuff. Was Zodiac also this year? We did Zodiac. that one. Yep. So, and I think that is at this level too, like with these. Like with No Country and, and Blood. Um, so, yeah, it's... Lots of dude movies. Dudes doing dude things. It, I mean, yeah. it's the film industry. That's always. Yeah, yeah. If, of course. Yeah. Um, although Juno came out this year as well, um, which I like. I don't know if, how you guys feel about Juno, but I like Juno. I remember enjoying it. I haven't seen it since... Me neither. Probably yeah. like 08 or 09 or Yeah, whatever. I saw it when it came out, um, and I haven't seen it since then, but I still remember liking it. Um, and I, it, it's one of those movies where I wonder if... Like, it has been aped so frequently since 2007 that it'll feel trite. And I feel like it kind of flipped over a few years after it came out to people hating on it just because it was, like, over-discussed or something like that. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, close There's always a, a backlash. Yeah, but yeah, there's yeah. always a backlash, especially when it's a female director and female screenwriter and female lead. Um, but I remember, like, you know, and I still uh, remember it well. So, yeah, 2007 is a hell of a year, and I feel we'll probably return to it again at some point. We're going to have to go back with our fracking technology to extract some more movies out of 2007. Oh, Gone Baby? Have you seen Gone Baby Gone? I don't think so. It's uh, a, I like that movie a lot, um, so I think that that is certainly an option as well. 
Um, and I'm sure there's something I'm forgetting because it's just one of those years. Yeah, yeah Gami Vivian's good. It I saw good. it for the first time recently. It oh, really? Was, yeah, within the last year and a half. Yeah, yeah it, I liked it a lot. I've seen it a few times. Um, but in any event, uh, we'll be back in a little bit to do things we've seen and announce the movie for next week. Thanks. All right, and we're back with things we've seen. Uh, this is a section where we talk about things that we're just watching. Um, Charles has said you didn't watch anything this week, Charles. Yeah, I'm going to have to pass. Uh, we had a bit of a weird recording schedule, so there wasn't that much time between yeah, this and the last show. So, many movies so I barely had enough time to catch There Will Be Blood, and there hasn't even been enough time for me to watch the second episode of Silicon Valley, so no updates from me this time. Okay, yeah, I think this is our third episode in three days. That, that's not how the audience will experience it, but that is yeah. how we experienced it. So totally this is totally reasonable for Charles. Yeah, it's all the weather's fault. Yes, so, it is. Wilson, you have seen something. What have you seen recently? Uh, yeah, this was a week or two ago, but um, Film Forum was screening Belle du Jour. Um, I have a woeful lack of opportunity to talk about the French New Wave um, for our show because I do this with a couple of Philistines. Um, but, <laughs> I've seen French New Wave movies. What ones? Not as extensively. Okay. Yeah. Well, what have you seen? Have you seen Belgeter? I haven't seen Belgeter. Okay. I've seen others. I often just forget the titles because they're like they're in French. Yeah. But uh, Bel- Alphaville is the one that I really okay. That, Which I actually have seen since you mentioned it like last Wait, year. Is that what the band's named after? I don't know. Possibly. I don't know. It's I don't about know a computer. Band. So yeah, it's a like science fiction new wave. Yeah. Um, they did. They did Forever Young, and that's the only song that they're known for. No, that that wasn't U two. No. No, you two did a different song that right. sounds like that one. What's yeah. Belle de Jour? Like? Um, <laughs> is uh, Catherine Deneuve plays a bougie Parisian woman in the 60s. The movie was made in 1967. Uh, Louise Brunel directed it. She is drenched in French ennui. Um, her husband is very nice and is a doctor and provides everything that she needs and that is not enough for her so she decides to spend her afternoons as a prostitute um, in a nearby Parisian brothel. Um, so the like many French New Wave films it kind of meanders a little bit from moment to moment and scene to scene and you have to kind of piece together how they're connected. Them- these events are connected thematically because they're not always connected uh, narratively that cleanly. Um, there are multiple dream sequences, uh, which are surprisingly violent. Um, and the movie, it's, Catherine Deneuve is very good in it. Um, she is often, uh, later in her career, and like this might be the threshold in that moment, um, she is thought of as kind of this more severe beauty, right? Like Catherine Deneuve is like on another level in terms of, you know, 1960s Hollywood filmmaking beauty. Um. And this movie feels like the transition point between that later stage of her career and the earlier part of her career where she was doing things like Umbrellas of Cherbourg, which inspired uh, La La Land, um, among other things. Um, and in in this film, she it is almost punishing of her sexuality, but also not in a very French way that is... Um, not interested in conclusions and more interested in presenting you with something that is strange and unexpected. Uh, it's This is a cornerstone of the French New Wave. Uh, it's not the first time I've seen it, but it's the first time I've seen it in a theater. Um, and it is a recommend if you're interested in this rather significant movement uh, within film history. 
Um, and it's also worth seeing because like many of these movies, it's shot on location in Paris and just seeing what 1960s Paris looks like and what 1960s Parisians look like is cool to me anyway. Um, and it provides an insight that you know you, you can't really get now because that's not what the city looks like anymore. Um, but this is uh, uh, Belle du Jour. It's a pretty quick 90 minutes like a lot of these movies um, and, and worth seeing uh, if you haven't already. I think there are more showtimes at Film Forum because I've gotten a few emails uh, about it. So yeah, they yeah they're screening it there. Um, there's a there's an actor in a supporting role um, in this movie who they're doing a series about, um, and that that is why they're showing it. Uh, and he's good. He plays like the the guy that finds her out uh, that she has been doing this and threatens to reveal her to her friends and her husband and things like that. Um, but yeah, it's it's good and it's it's worth seeing. Belle de Jour. Cool. So, Russell, what did you see? You said um, I, you said I would find it funny. Yeah, so I watched the. Um, There's a chance I was going to go see the new Tomb Raider. Okay, I didn't want to be confused, so I watched the 2001 <laughs> Lara Croft Tomb Raider. You think that would decrease your confusion? Wait, what? Yeah. <laughs> but this one's a reboot. This is the this is the Angelina Jolie one from 2001. I, actually, I saw this in theaters. I believe I also saw it in theaters. <laughs> yeah. I've caught it on TBS many, many times. I haven't seen it since then, but yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, it's on Netflix right now if you care to. I don't. Uh, I recommend that you don't. <laughs> um, it's it's pretty bad. It suffers a lot from early 2000s uh, CGI. Doesn't age very well in a lot of cases. I imagine. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there is a pre-bond Daniel Craig in this film. Really? Oh, wow. Yeah. He, I did not know he was in that one. Yeah, he plays her kind of competitor, kind of friend, explorer. A frenemy? Yeah. Okay. Um, also, <laughs> the actor that plays Sir Jorah Mormont in Game of Thrones <laughs> really? is the, like, the true bad, like, the bad explorer okay. in, in the film. Uh, Daniel Craig also plays an American. He has a terrible American accent in it. Um, so he, he had right. to learn for Logan Lucky then. Yeah, well, that accent was amazing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. this one he's just playing like kind of a dude bro accent, <laughs> and he wears like matching cargo shorts. So <laughs> nice. Yeah. Well, um, that's good if you're prowling through the jungle. So yeah, that's true. A very sweaty John Voight is in this film as well. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, which her dad. Her dad, and he plays her dad in the film okay. as well. Um, so they get the chemistry right. Yeah. yeah. This movie also suffers a lot from um, Orientalist racism. Not surprising uh, so at all. Yeah, I mean, and the entire premise of the movie is like white people kind like going out and exploring. Yeah, uh, that would be that's the the source material as well. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. Kind of how all these explore, exploration <laughs> genre things go, right? Yeah, it, it's an easy trap to fall into. Yeah, yeah. They make it worse in a lot of ways, though. Um, so, for instance, they, they use the magical person of color trope a few times in the okay. film. So she gets healed by these, like, Buddhist monks. Yeah. And there are kind of, like, magical Asian children that appear throughout, like, one of the temples she's exploring. <laughs> uh, and that struck me pretty hard this time. <laughs> God. Yeah. And it the whole thing just seems like some white people just going and just, like, fucking up, like... These That's ancient temples. Literally what happens in the games. Yeah. <laughs> that is yeah. beat for beat. Um, <laughs> Even the new ones. There is one really yeah. one good action sequence when she's in like a South Asian temple mm -hmm. and the sort of like golems that are like in the temple kind of come alive and they like attack her. They're, they're, it's a good like action set piece. Um, 
there's a sort of like Buddhist style God that has multiple arms and the arms like all wield swords. And okay. that, like, I was like, oh, that's like, that's kind of like a cool right. set piece. Um, the rest of the movie is kind of inane and a really bad take on like Indiana Jones, which is what the game was supposed to be. Yeah. But yeah, just, yeah, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, it reminds I mean, me of a, a bit that's been floating around the internet recently where someone proposed a reverse Indiana Jones where they cast like Tessa Thompson or somebody as the female version of like Indiana Jane, I guess. Oh, and they return the artifacts? Yeah, they, yeah. Yeah, they break into museums and, <laughs> steal, yeah, yeah. and bring it back to where it came from. Yeah. Like, this does not belong in a museum. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it would be like if the first, like the Killmonger intro scene and in Black Panther were a whole movie. <laughs> if that, if that Which would be kind of Which would be awesome. awesome. Yeah, I definitely yeah. want to see that movie. I, I would watch the that movie The climax is them sure. like taking back the Elgin marbles. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you pick your giant artifact. There's plenty of options. Um, so yeah, I would watch. I would watch the hell out of that movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. Um, I, I mean, I think this is one of many examples as to why video games should generally not be made into movies. And yes. this is like one of the better video game movies. It's like. This is up there with like Mortal Kombat and yeah. like at the like top of the video game heap. Yeah. Well, I mean, part of the problem is that video games are uniquely bad at telling linear stories, right? Like they are like the form itself is poorly positioned to do that, and so of course it's not going to. And it also well. takes kind of the joy out of the video game, right? Right. The, video, the experience is that you experience it personally, and you are yes. the one that yeah. is. You like, use the parts that they're doing yeah. well, and you keep the parts that they're doing poorly. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, and that. It, it, that's a predict. There are predictable bad results when you do that. Um, have, have you seen? Oh no, go ahead. No, go for it. Uh, have you seen the the new Tomb Raider yet? No, I heard it's not terrible. Um, I get the impression like it's going to be similar to what you just described. Okay, I mean, I, don't, I haven't seen it. Yeah, there's also like a like there this that movie kind of suffers from the the female reboot of Ghostbusters. Okay. Uh, problem where like men's rights people like atta- like attack the film right and so you're like because they're not attractive yeah, enough to Alicia Vikander <laughs> like are you people insane right yeah, yeah yeah and so it's like is it is it now activism to watch a shitty movie yeah because these like terrible people <laughs> don't are, like, like upset it. about it yeah I don't think that's the correct reaction to this as well um I I haven't watched it I'll I might go see it um but. Yeah, I, yeah I, I kind of want to see it. I played the games that that reboot is based on, and the new those are actually pretty good games, despite suffering from a lot of similar narrative problems that the first mm-hmm. Tomb Raider games did. They're good video games, um, so in that sense, I'm kind of interested. Well, I think what's funny is that like video games of like they quietly like eat the lunch of Hollywood all day. They, pay, they cost sixty bucks a pop. Yeah, and we don't <laughs> we don't see them as like a high art at all. They've or like gen- they're not culturally accepted as high art as movies are. Yeah, I mean, and for good reason a lot of times. Yeah, but yeah. then there there are some that kind of come around. You're really like struck by them. Like yes. I, I watched a playthrough of one of the most recent Resident Evils, and I was like, "Holy shit, this is like way scarier than like <laughs> most that's, movies that's that come true. out." Yeah, yeah. That's fair. Especially when you play it in VR. Oh man! Oh I, yeah, I can't and even, that one was like made for VR. Yeah, I can't exactly. Or, um, I haven't played it, but I hear The Last of Us is like it's amazing, much more affecting than like most movies yeah, are. It, it's uh, it's it really is that's, amazing. That's an advantage of the medium, right? Like you can grow more attached to the characters because you're with them for so long. Yeah. I, th- I remember playing Last of Us and thinking at the time this would be better as a prestige drama. 
Yeah. Right. Like there were very few. Mo- like it plays well, right? Like it, like the the gun action is actually pretty good, and like this mix between the stealth and the the action sequences work. But narratively, I'm just you're still just like watching stuff. Like you're not interacting with it narratively, and that might as well be a TV show. Like I, I was okay with that. I, I still I still liked it, right? I still enjoyed the story, and the yeah. characters still worked for me. But there was no it it did not need to be a video game to tell that story. Right, and I'm waiting for the game that can tell an affecting story like that in a way that requires it to be a video game. Yeah, and I, mean, I think it's enhanced by being a video game because the survival horror aspect of it lets you feel the character's desperation. I guess I feel that when I watch movies and TV too. Right, like, well, I don't know. I think the one thing that like videos, video games are kind of allowed to be absurd, and yeah, they take advantage of that in ways that like most movies can't. Um, yeah, and what I mean is like. Just the by virtue of like the environment and the interactive environment, you're allowed to do like kind of nutty things that are like Zelda. The most recent Zelda is a great example of this, where there's this like interesting mix of like there's this lost civilization that's kind of like reawakening, but then you're also in like kind of like a post-apocalyptic, mm-hmm. like beautiful environment. And there's that's there's like an interesting mix that's happening there, and there's just like details of it that like are just are not captured by films well mm-hmm. or not. Films are not allowed to like do things like this, right? Yeah, yeah, I think that's a good observation, right? Yeah. Like that, what what games need to do is stop trying to be movies, because they're not, they're never going to be as good, right? Because they they always have this massive variable, which is the player yeah. who can come along and fuck up everything. Well, yeah, I think there's been a good backlash to games like that, though. So, yeah. like the Call of Duties of the world are kind of this like shooter on rails, like and. Like their story is always like super militaristic and like just true. They are yeah, and <laughs> yeah. like your your level of interaction with the like the first player element of the game is like pretty low. Yeah, I mean, literally the only way to interact with the world is via a gun, right? Yeah, right. and that's yeah. important. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And I, I think there's a strong reaction to against games like that. I think it's actually been good and like has allowed films like the new Zelda, new Mario to like come in. Yeah, no, I agree. I think that the the gaming industry is finally starting to figure out like a better way to tell stories. And I think yeah. there is still room to tell linear stories in games, but I think it will almost always be inferior to to movies and to to novels and to television. If yeah. that's what they're trying to do. Yeah. I think that's fine. Uh, anyways, uh, original Tomb Raider um, to watch that one action set piece. And that's it. It's cool. Find it on YouTube. The rest of it's garbage. Okay, that would have been my guess. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you just told me that you were watching this movie. Yeah. Um, so next week uh, we have a, a communal pick. Um, Strangers on a train is playing at a theater in New York. Um, by the time that episode airs, our fellow New Yorkers will have missed that opportunity. So yeah, maybe we can. Sorry, but yeah, sorry. Uh, <laughs> it plays it's syndicated, and it seems like a cool theater. So. Right, and I've been there, and it is a cool theater. Slash bar. <laughs> yeah, and seeing uh, Hitchcock on a big screen is going to be great. So we're going to do that, and then we'll, we will be discussing Strangers on a Train. I'm sure it's available streaming as well for people that want to watch it. Uh, it's probably out of copyright at this point. So. Yeah, honestly. Yeah. Um, so we will thank you all for listening. Um, if you like the show, please share it with people. Please post about it. Please comment, like, all those things that you're supposed to do when you like stuff on the Internet. And we'll be back next week for Strangers on a Train. <laughs>